Today, you are part of an important conversation about our shared future. The Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues explores a diversity of viewpoints on international and public policy issues to promote understanding and encourage debate across the university and the state of Nebraska. Since its inception in 1988, hundreds of distinguished speakers have challenged and inspired us, making this forum one of the preeminent speaker series in higher education. It all started when Ian Jack Thompson imagined a forum on global issues that would increase Nebraskans' understanding of cultures and events from around the world. Jack's perspective was influenced by his travels, his role in helping to found the United Nations, and his work at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. As president of the Cooper Foundation in Lincoln, Jack pledged substantial funding to the forum, and the University of Nebraska and Leeds Center for Performing Arts agreed to co-sponsor. Later, Jack and his wife Katie created the Thompson Family Fund to support the forum and other programs. Today, major support is provided by the Cooper Foundation, Leeds Center for Performing Arts, and University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We hope this talk sparks an exciting conversation among you. And now, on with the show. For more than a quarter century, the University and the Cooper Foundation have partnered with the Lead Center for Performing Arts to make this forum possible. Tonight, we are pleased to be joined by these co-sponsors, the UNL Women's Center, the Center for Civic Engagement and the SUSE Grant, and the UNL College of Journalism and Mass Communications. This year, as you know, the Ian Thompson Forum speakers have been focusing on the theme of activism. It's my pleasure this evening to introduce you to a champion among activists. The first Asian American Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, Cheryl Wooden, has journeyed through several industries, from banking, to journalism, to book writing. She's used her immense talent as a writer, speaker, and thought leader to advocate for those without the resources to advocate for themselves. She was selected as one of Newsweek's 150 women who shake the world. She's helped raise awareness about the challenges facing women. Her best-selling books include A Path Appears, about spreading opportunity and making a difference in the world, and Half the Sky, about oppression of women and girls around the world. A highly successful business executive, Cheryl currently works with entrepreneurs in the media, technology, and social enterprise at MidMedia Securities, a small investment banking boutique in New York City. This evening after her remarks, you'll have the opportunity to ask Cheryl questions via Twitter using the hashtag EnThompsonForum. And following her talk, Cheryl has agreed to autograph books in the second floor lobby to the rear of the main hall. The title of this evening's presentation is Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide. Please join me in giving a warm Nebraska welcome to Cheryl Wudun. Welcome. Thank you. Wow, look at this. Thank you so much. I am just delighted to be here, and I want to thank the organizers, the Ian Thompson Forum and the University of Nebraska for allowing me to come on a beautiful weather day instead of the snowstorm. <laughs> so thank you very much. And I love coming to Lincoln. It's my first time, and um, I'm very lucky. 
So I want to talk to you um, also about some topics that seem so distant. They're spiritually and physically very distant from our workaday world here. Um, and so I appreciate that you have invited me here to talk about these, these issues. But there are some things that are very common. How we achieve success, the road to success. And so I do want to talk a little bit about some of those paths um, from remote places that also lead to success. You know, there are, we've had some great changes uh, uh, in, in history. If you think back to the days of Alexander the Great, when it was a real achievement to kill your first man at the age of 12. And then the Middle Ages, the World Wars, uh, we have really become a much less violent society. Yes, guns abound, but dueling is no longer common. And that's really, really important. Some of you have seen Alexander the Hamilton the play in New York, right? Well, that's uh, been reviving the, the, the problems with dueling. Um, but there is one thing that has not made that much progress. And it is wife burnings, it is maternal mortality, it is the abuse, the hatred, and the violence against women. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of that today and about some of the ways to get out of that. So I'd like to take you to one of my favorite places. Let's see if I can get this to work. China. You see it? Okay, there you go. That photo was taken only two weeks ago. <laughs> In fact, that little boy on my husband's shoulders is probably like many of you, a graduating college. <laughs> so, uh, well, it just goes to show how Quickly, kids grow up in two weeks. <laughs> but for those of you who have been to China, that is Tiananmen Square. And of course, that's not the real China, but when you go to China, you probably make a stop in Tiananmen Square. Let me take you to the real China. This is Daimanju. Daimanju was 13 years old when the story starts. She lives in a very remote part of Hebei province, two hours from the nearest road. She lives in a little hut with her parents, her brother, her great aunt, and they have no running water, no electricity, uh, they have no refrigerator, no radio, no wristwatch, no bicycle, and they share this great splendor with a very large pig. Yes, a pig. Uh, and so Daimanju was 13 years old when she was about to enter sixth grade. And her parents said, you know, Taimanju, you are going to be spending the rest of your life in the rice paddies, doing household chores. It costs us $13 every year to send you to school. What a waste of money. So they pulled her out of school. For Taimanju, that was really, uh, uh, she was horror-stricken because it turns out she was the best pupil in the grade. And you know what it takes to be number one. And so she was devastated. She still made the two-hour trek to school, hung out at the, the schoolhouse. Maybe someone would give her some books that they didn't want anymore or some you know, paper or, or pen that she, pencil she could write on. She was so poor she couldn't even afford that. So we wrote about her in the New York Times, and there was a flood of, of letters, many of which had donations in them for, for $13. 
And then there was this money transfer for $10,000. It was amazing. Well, we thought, this is wonderful. What, a, what generosity. We, we gave the money to that man in the photo. Well, you can see the photo again. He's the teacher right, uh, standing next to Diamond Jew. He was overjoyed. He thought, I can give not only a scholarship to Diamond Jew, I can give one to all of the girls. I can give one to the boys, too, so everyone will stay in school. I can renovate the schoolhouse. So Diamond Jew was uh, finishing up with sixth grade when we thought, why don't we give a progress report to this, this donor? Um, after all, it, it was just so nice of him. So we called up the donor and we said, Sir, we want to thank you for your generosity. You have no idea how far $10,000 goes in poor rural China. There was a pause at the other end of the line. He said, I didn't give $10,000, I gave $100. Well, we had a problem here. Well, we looked into this, and sure enough, there was a bank clerk who had a slight problem with decimal points. <laughs> yeah, Nick and I used to joke that we were sure that during the financial crisis, he must have been transferred to the Department for Subprime Mortgages. But we really had this problem on our hands because we had just given $10,000 to this you know, poor guy um, and we didn't have the money to give it back. And so we thought about something. And so I know that there are a lot of journalism students in the audience, so for those of you there, please put this story aside because we're not really proud as journalists of what we did, but we we're in a bind. So we knew someone, a senior official at the bank. It was uh, Morgan Guarantee Trust Bank which, as you happen to see, is no longer around, but... <laughs> so, nothing to do with this particular $10,000, of course. <laughs> but, um, so we called up the official and we said, um, Sir, uh, we are doing a follow-up story, and on the record, we want to know, are you going to send your bankers to this remote village to get your money back and throw all these girls out of school again? <laughs> well, he didn't miss a beat. He said, on the record, under the circumstances, we are delighted to make a donation for the difference. <laughs> so, thank goodness, all the kids, they were able to continue school. Daimondu was able to finish middle school, she went to high school, she went to vocational school for accounting. And then Daimondu, this is unheard of, in a tiny little remote village. She went down to the southern province of Guangdong to look for a job. Uh, she found a job as, a, you know, an account, in, in, as in the accounting department of a factory. She got a paycheck, the first in her family. And then we actually had a natural experiment in girls' education. Because what we saw next was something remarkable. So Daimon Ju started sending money back to her home. Her parents started saving the money. Pretty soon they had enough money to build a new house. This time with electricity, with running water, a refrigerator, radio, a bicycle. The pig moved outside. <laughs> it was really interesting to see that a vicious cycle had been broken and a virtuous cycle had been started. And this was going on with Daimonju's female classmates as well. They sent money back. Their parents actually started saving and then built houses. And sure enough, this village became much more prosperous. 
So you might be saying, well, of course, China was blossoming at the time. And that is true, but this village actually stood out. And it stood out because they educated the girls. In fact, the government built a road to link the village to the rest of China. And, you know, this has been repeated millions of times throughout China, throughout Asia. And it's the story of educating girls and boys as well, but focusing on making sure that the girls also stay in school because uh, they actually can help uh, not only educate themselves, but pay back to their village. Uh, and uh, when you gross that up, it really means GDP for the economy. It's, it's pretty remarkable. That brings me to the first of the two major themes of Half the Sky. And the first is that, you know, it's not so much IQ that keeps a lot of these girls in the developing world in school. It's chromosomes. What chromosomes do you have? Uh, because often the girls will get pulled out uh, for, for lack of funds. And so we do think, if I can get right, that the moral challenge of this century is gender inequity. In the same way that in the 19th century it was slavery, and in the 20th it was totalitarianism, we think that the cause, the moral cause of our time is the gender inequity. It's the brutality that so many people around the world face because of their gender. Now you may think, oh my goodness, what an exaggeration. How can you make such a claim? And at first I thought that that was an exaggeration too. It was too big a claim to make. But then I looked at, well, actually, let me, I'm going to burden you with another poll, another quiz. I know you just had a whole bunch of quiz questions there. But let me ask you this. How many of you think there are more males or more females in the world today? Okay, let's take a poll. How many of you think there are more males in the world today? Raise your hands. Okay, a few. How many of you think there are more females in the world today? Raise your hands. Ah, the majority of you. Well, in fact, the majority of you are wrong. Yes, I know, it sounds very strange. Here in the US, in Europe, you know, when we have male and, and females have equal access to food, healthcare, well, you know, there are more females in the world because we live longer. That's not true in the rest of the world, particularly the developing world. In fact, there's been some amazing research by uh, Amartya Sen, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics. He and his demographers did some remarkable, uh, you know, statistical analysis about the world population, and they discovered that there are anywhere between 60 million and 100 million missing females in the current population. Missing females. Just take the smaller number, 60 million. That is the size of Germany. And look at what an economic powerhouse that is. You see the implications. It's huge. It also tips the global population, the balance of male-female around the world, so that there are more males in the world. Uh, so it is stunning. But that brings me to my, uh, the next of the two major tenets of of half the sky. And so let's put aside the right and wrong of it all. Let's put aside the moral issue. If we were just to look at the practical issue, we think that one of the major uh, ways to bring about uh, growth and to bring about, and to really address sometimes even things like terrorism is to educate girls and to bring women into the formal labor force. So basically, when you think about it, it's, it's school and jobs. It's what we here all care about. It also is true of those in the rest of the world, in the developing world. 
So, you know, how does educating a girl, you know, help with poverty? Well, you know, as you saw with Daimanju, when you educate a girl, you know, she actually, um, you know, you, you sort of help a village. Uh, maybe it's the maternal instinct, they don't really know, but they actually see uh, that it has a profound effect. One of the biggest effects has to do with overpopulation in, at the micro level. So, for instance, uh, when you educate a girl, she tends to get married uh, later on in life, she tends to have kids later on in life, and she tends to have fewer kids. And when she, et when she does raise those fewer kids, she tends to raise them in a more enlightened way because of her education. So that has a profound effect. It's happened generation after generation. We saw it happen actually here in the U.S. as well. Remember all those larger families, you know, uh, a century ago. And that's true, we've seen it happen uh, in, in the developing world as well as countries move up the economic ladder. The second thing is that, um, you know, women also can become part of the solution. We often tend to think of them as a problem. Oh, it's a problem with all these, the, these women who are uneducated, but actually they can be really part of the solution. Let's see if we can get this. Um, skip that. They, they really are part of the solution. Um, the, the other reason has to do with, um, it's something that uh, Bill Gates said as he was touring Saudi Arabia. And he was speaking to an audience very much like, uh, like yourselves. There was one major difference though. So on this side, there was all men. On this side was all women. They were covered, Saudi Arabia after all, and there was a physical barrier. So there was just no way that the males could see the females. Um, someone from this side, a man, stood up and said, Mr. Gates, we have here in this country the goal to become one of the top 10 uh, countries when it comes to growth. Do you think we'll make it? And as he stared out, out at the crowd, he said, you know, if you're not fully utilizing half the talent in your country, there is no way you'll get near the top 10. So, here is Bill of Arabia. <laughs> so what does an agenda look like? What, does, what are some of the top issues facing women when it comes to, when, society when it comes to uh, gender inequity? Um, I'd say one uh, topic that probably some of you have heard about is trafficking. Uh, you know, sex trafficking, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, it has become, it is a global problem, and it's actually also come to the shores of the U.S., uh, or at least it has surfaced more in our, um, in, in, in the public sphere. What actually, um, what actually uh, is it? Uh, if you look at, um, take Cambodia for an example, what tends to happen is a, a young girl, she could be 11, 12, 13, even younger, often gets kidnapped from a remote place where she lives. It's usually a, a, you know, a very remote village and she's not very well educated. And she's sold to a brothel where she is forced to work 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, she's not paid a dime. And she often isn't even fed that much because they don't want her uh, to get fat. What does that look like? Well, it looks like slavery. Um, let's compare it to slavery as we know it in, in this country, just a very simple comparison. If you look at the 
peak of the slave trade uh, in the US, uh, in the 1770s and 1780s, there were about 80,000 slaves transported from Africa to the New World each year. Now, um, and there were some statistics that are very difficult to come by because our borders are much more porous, but the State Department did one estimate and they found that across international borders, there were 800,000 people who had been trafficked uh, across uh, international borders, many of them uh, for sex. Uh, and that doesn't even include those who are trafficked within their borders, uh, you know, within um, uh, Cambodia, for instance. And so, you know, that's a really amazing figure. So here's our, some girls who are in Cambodia who, who are, are trafficked and they're at a brothel. The other uh, comparison is the value of a slave during the times of slavery here in the US. If you actually gross that uh, dollar amount up, uh, counting for um, you know, the uh, inflation and whatnot, um, that slave has a value of about 40, 35 to $40,000, which is real money. That's real money. You know how much these girls go for? As little as $300, uh, which, why is that so devastating? It's because it means that she's utterly disposable. So if she resists, they beat her up, or if she you know, really puts up a fight, they get rid of her. I mean, they could kill her. They could actually really reduce her to nothing. And so it becomes much more insidious. So that is the problem. No, it is also happening here in the US. And I want to tell you the story of one uh, woman named Shauna who who, uh, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon that really is here, uh, existing here in the U.S., and hopefully it's not here in Lincoln, uh, but it is uh, in places, uh, you know, where we don't expect it. So Shauna uh, actually is in Nashville. She was born with blonde hair, blue eyes, and heroin in her system. Her mother uh, was a drug, drug addict, and would often trade sex for drugs. And when Shauna was 13 years old, she, her mother took Shauna to a customer's home because obviously she was gonna try and, you know, have her work. And Shauna was very frightened. She had no idea what, was, what she was supposed to do. And she got very nervous and resisted. And her mother shot her up with heroin. And Shauna just remembers falling back onto the waterbed and that was her initiation into prostitution. So that was her life. So Shauna then had her pimp, Nitty, uh, who you know, commanded what she did, uh, took every single penny from her. She never had a penny of her own. Uh, he took all of the money. He told her where to go. He branded her, actually, in the way that you brand cows, which I know you all are familiar with here. <laughs> but she got branded, too. Let me see if I can. Now, this is Shauna. She did that one because it says trust no one. Um, but that's Shauna. And so by the age of 35, she trusted no one. Uh, she had been arrested 167 times. Her pimp, zero. So this is Shauna. What her, the life that she had to live, um, you know, as someone who had been trafficked was, you know, is, is pretty miserable. So. This is something that is very real, um, you know, in our society as well. 
The next issue on the agenda that I want to talk about is maternal mortality. And it is the maternal mortality um, is, has such numbers that over the years it really has helped contribute to this 60 million missing females in the global population. Look, everyone here in the US and in, in Europe, uh, when uh, there is a child, when there is a birth, we celebrate it. It's, it's something we, we look forward to. In a place like Niger, one in seven women can expect to die sometime in their lifetime from childbirth. We know it's not rocket science. It's just political will. We know what it takes to allow women to deliver smoothly. It's just simple, basic health care. But that is so non-existent in a lot of these places, partly because these women have three things not going for them. They are poor, they are rural, and they are female. Now, if you actually just look at the women who do survive, for every woman who dies in childbirth, there are 20 who survive, but with some serious injury from childbirth, some serious injury. And one of the most devastating injuries is obstetric fistula. Have, how many of you have heard of obstetric fistula? Good, okay. So you know what happens. It's basically you have obstructed, a woman has obstructed labor, and um, there's a puncture in her bladder, uh, and so there's a lot of leakage. Let me tell you the story of Mahabuba. This is Mahabuba. Mahabuba was 13 when she was, she got married against her will, and she got pregnant against her will. She uh, lives in Ethiopia. She ran out to the bush, basically. She was so young. I mean, her body was also immature. She was so young. She ran onto the bush to have the baby. She had obstructed labor. The baby died, and she ended up with a fistula. Well, she had no idea what was happening, but she couldn't control herself. She controlled her waists, and so she, she stank. The villagers didn't know what happened to her. They thought she was cursed, and they thought, what are we going to do with her? So they found a hut at the edge of the village, and they ripped off the door so that the hyenas would get her at night. That night, Mahabuba found a stick in the hut, and she fought off those hyenas with that stick the entire night. She was 14 years old. And then the next morning, she knew that there was a foreign missionary in the nearest village. If she could just get to him, he'll know what to do, and he'll help her. Well, so she had some damage to her inside, so she couldn't really walk, so she dragged herself to the nearest village. And, you know, at night, she would climb up the trees and spend the night there to avoid the hyenas again. The reason she spent so many nights in the trees was that that village was 30 miles away. So Mahabuba, she made it. She made it to that missionary's doorstep. He took one look at her. He knew exactly what had happened. He rushed her off to the Addis Ababa Fishtal Hospital. And you know, she was repaired in a series of operations, 300, 400, 500, several hundred dollars. That's what it was, and she was repaired. And, and as she was recovering, the doctors noticed this girl, yes, she's made of steel. She survived. But not only that, they saw that she was clever. So they made her a nurse 
at the hospital. So here's Mahabuba, at a nurse at the hospital. She is giving back. She's helping thousands of girls who are in her situation. And she's, again, part of the solution, not the problem. She is now in a virtuous cycle, not a vicious cycle. And this is her friend um, who, very similar story to Mahabuba, but um, she also, the doctors noticed that she was very good with her fingers, but totally uneducated. Um, but she now helps with the surgeries because she is so good with her fingers that she helps the doctors with the surgeries. Uh, again, they found a woman who uh, is part of the solution now, no longer part of the problem. So it is, um, you know, important to see that uh, women can be put become part of the solution. And I've given you a hint about how some of that happens. There are also more general areas where you really can uh, bring women in as part of the solution. It tends to work uh, to help, uh, you know, in areas of health, uh, in areas of financial empowerment, uh, and in education. So what happened with um, Shauna? Shauna. Uh, actually was helped by a woman named Becca Stevens, who is a chaplain at, the, uh, at Vanderbilt University. She, she noticed there were a lot of women who were being trafficked, and she wanted to help out. And so she formed this program called the Magdalene Program, where she has a safe house where all these women are brought, people like Shauna are brought to, and she basically detoxes them. She brings in doctors to examine them, and Shauna was actually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress syndrome. So she was really like fighting a war all her life. Uh, it was like living in a war. And then the, she also had another doctor sort of remove a lot of the tattoos. Um, he you know, kept that one that she had. Um, and so now, uh, you know, Shauna was much better physically. Uh, and then she had to find a purpose in life. And so, Becca Stevens formed this enterprise called Thistle Farms, where the girls who are able to make it through her program can actually find a job. And so Thistle Farms makes soaps, scents, crafts, um, candles, and they sell them uh, at places. They're, you know, they make them, they design them, and uh, they sell them. And so Sean actually was put into the sales department, and it turned out that she was a brilliant saleswoman. She actually is, she's a fiery woman. She actually uh, probably, you know, uh, wears down <laughs> these, the, 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 the stores that actually uh, she's trying to sell to. Uh, and in fact now, Thistle Farms products is being sold at Whole Foods. So if you ever see some products, some soaps, and you know, at Whole Foods that are made by Thistle Farms, and you buy some, you're supporting people like Shauna. Shauna is really uh, doing much better. She's been off alcohol and drugs for four years, and she also is giving back now, too. She goes out on, not quite raids, but she helps the police go roam the streets to look for girls who have been trafficked, and she has much more street cred with them to, con to convince and persuade them to come off the streets and go into a program like Magdalene. So it is very much... Um, possible to bring these women into the solution again and not uh, be just part of the part of the problem. The other area uh, that is really uh, important is financial empowerment. And I know a lot of you have heard of things like micro lending, right? You've all heard of micro lending. 
Um, there's another kind of microfinance, uh, which is micro savings, which is even better, which is even more powerful. And when it works, it can be transformative. Let me tell you the story of um, a woman named Goretti. So Goretti uh, was living in Burundi, which is a beautiful, lush place in Africa, but it just happens to be one of the poorest places. So Goretti uh, and lived with her husband, Bernard, and uh, she had like six children. Goretti was not able to touch cash. She's not able to touch cash, That's, it was a rule. And she also is not able to leave the house without Bernard's permission. Uh, it's, it was kind of a custom uh, that uh, a lot of the women in, the, in her village had to follow. So when they went shopping for vegetables, um, Goretti would carry the basket, Bernard would go with her, they would go to the marketplace and she would point out what she needed, they, they would put it into her basket, she would carry the basket, and Bernard would pay for it, and they'd go home. So Goretti had heard about this program uh, in the village. Uh, it was kind of like a micro-savings program. She didn't really know that much about it, but she heard that there was a really good program, and she wanted to join it. Uh, and so she kept asking permission from Bernard, and he, he kept saying, no, 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 you know, you can't. Meanwhile, Bernard would go out a few times a week and drink banana beer. That's beer made from banana. Um, and he would actually spend 30% of the household income on his banana beer. But he wouldn't let Goretti go out. So finally, she had to sneak out of the house. So she made him a nice dinner, she tended to all his needs, and then she snuck out of the house. So what happens in this micro-savings uh, circle is that each woman brings a dime. They all put it in the center, and then they lend it to one, one woman for that month. And this was a new um, group, and so they had to choose a, a president, and they chose Goretti. So here, Goretti, is the president of a micro-savings group, and she has never touched cash before. <laughs> but that didn't stop her. And in fact, she decided to actually borrow the money. That they decided to lend the money to her that time, and she had to choose a project. And so what did she do? She actually took the money, she bought some fertilizer, and she planted some potatoes. And she actually had a really good round, a really good crop of potatoes. So she was able to sell those potatoes at a uh, quite a nice price, and then she paid off the loan with interest, like $2.50 or some of that, to, to, her, to her, her fellow micro-savings group mates. And then she had this profit, and she was thinking, what am I going to do with this profit? She was thinking, hmm, what can I invest in? She knew that there was one product that would sell well, that certainly sold well in her household. <laughs> yep, and that was banana beer. So she invested in a banana beer business, and it did really well. In fact, Goretti became like the local tycoon. Let's see, this is Goretti. She was able to buy, you know, a goat. She did animal husbandry. She's really blossomed now. And she also brought Bernard in as a partner, which was very important. So they are partners in this enterprise. They are together, the tycoons of, of, the, of the village. And when Bernard happened to come down with malaria, guess who paid the hospital bills? Goretti. So when micro-savings works, it can work extremely well. I mean, it doesn't always work this well, but, but it really does work. And, you know, um, I do want to give you a reality check. Uh, it doesn't always work this, this well. Um, 
Greta is a special case uh, because she then went on to become a role model for women in the village. She's coaching women on how to actually speak up, on how to actually do animal husbandry or how to start their own businesses. She's really become very active in the village. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's hard. Helping people is very hard. And there have been a lot of books written criticizing aid. A lot of development experts have been, experts have been saying aid doesn't work. Foreign aid doesn't work. Uh, USAID has, you know, gives f about $500 million a year, and, and it doesn't give, it's only 1%, less than 1% of the, of the GDP. It's not a huge amount, as, as some people think. Um, and they've improved their methods over the year, but, you know, people have criticized aid programs, and they are, they have a, a certain legitimate uh, uh, legitimacy there. They, aid is, is, is very, it's not always done well. It's not always... The programs are not always implemented well. There's also corruption, so it is hard to to, uh, to find you know a preponderance of success stories. But there are success stories, uh, and sometimes aid is not very sexy either. Uh, we often think, oh, it would be nice to have to build a school and have our name written on it. University of Nebraska donors, right? That is good, I and mean, we need to build schools, and it's really important to build schools in Tanzania, or, or in Uganda, or in Kenya. But you know something that's even more effective? It's not what you think. Deworming pills. Now, how sexy is that? <laughs> how many of you have heard of deworming pills? What they are is that there are a lot of kids, uh, you know, they're eating dirty food, and they're getting intestinal worms. And what happens, and, and girls are especially vulnerable, they get intestinal worms, and then the worms basically suck the nutrients uh, from, from the kid. She gets anemic, she can't concentrate in school, she can't do her homework, she starts to drop out. So it's this vicious cycle where you want to keep the girls in school, but you know, this is, 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 is what's obstructing them from staying in school. So if you give them a pill um, you know, every year, then you can actually deworm them, and they're more likely to actually get absorb their own nutrients and to, to stay healthy and, to, and to, to work and function more more effectively at school. And you know, building schools is very important. You need schools. It's a, about a hundred dollars per extra marginal student that you keep in school with the, with with building schools. But deworming kids, it's about a few dollars. It's much cheaper, and it also works. So you need both, but. There are sometimes things that you can do that are far more cost-effective that, unfortunately, are not sexy. So we, we also um, know that it's hard to talk about things like deworming pills. I mean, you know, you can't really go up to your friend and say, hey, have you gotten the latest on deworming pills? It's not really very interesting. So we want to reach people uh, in ways that they are, are reached. We also know that book reading is not America's favorite pastime. So we also thought a documentary would work. So I'd like to show you a trailer from the documentary. Well, actually, before I do that, I want to give you one last, um, one last uh, example of the third area that I mentioned, which is education. So I talked about Daimaju, um, and it's not just Asia where education works. Uh, it's also uh, in Africa, uh, in, in South America, but particularly in, in Africa where it is so important uh, to build education. 
uh, and to give kids an education. Let me tell you the story of Beatrice Bira. Beatrice was nine years old. Uh, she lived on the border, inside Uganda, along the border, and she had never been to a lick of school. And her parents again said, you know, this is too expensive, we can't afford it, you know, you're, you're also a, a girl, we're not going to send you to school. Well, there's an organization uh, based in Arkansas called Heifer International, and they happened to send two, two goats to uh, the village in, in Uganda where, um, where Beatrice was, was raised, and one of those goats went to Beatrice's parents. So the goat had twins, and started producing milk, and they found that they could also sell the milk. So they started selling the milk. They had a lot of milk. They started selling a lot of the milk, and they, the cash started pouring in. And then they realized that they actually had enough money to send Beatrice to school. So here's Beatrice at nine years old, and she was um, going to school with, you know, the first graders, but that was okay. She was just delighted to be in school. She, in fact, she rocketed to the top of her class. She stayed at the top of her class in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, and then she scored brilliantly on the national examinations that she actually was able to secure a place at a college here in the U.S. A few years ago, Beatrice graduated from Connecticut College. You know, and on her celebration day, she said, um, this is the best day of my life because of a goat. <laughs> it, truly, it truly was. I mean, it's, you think of these programs, you hear about Heifer International, but they really can make a difference uh, in, in, in a life. And, and what's important about these programs like Heifer is that they also teach you how to fish rather than give you a fish. And that's what's important. Is sustainable solutions is what uh, you know, the world is looking for, not just handouts, not just aid. It really is looking for sustainable uh, solutions. So now I can get you to um, uh, the documentary that we did that actually shows uh, a lot of the challenges that women are facing around the world. How we treat women and girls is absolutely essential to who we are as a people issue of gender equality globally must be addressed if the problems that we share across the world are to be solved. It's the way that we can bring greater peace and balance in this world. We're at the point of freedom, and that means two things. One is it's maximum danger, and the other is we're not going to stop. What Nick and Cheryl have been able to do is tell very compelling stories of people that they empathize with and understand in their context. Well, I, I got an email. I remember like the subject being like Sierra Leone, and I opened that one because I was like, oh, that's interesting, what's that all about? And then it was the invitation to come on board, and I immediately said yes. I love what Nick and Cheryl say in the book, that women are not the problem, they're the solution. When I, I started reading what half the sky is about and what the message is and the story. You are so beautiful and so smart. I know you will be very successful. You can't say no. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't ask, but can I ask, did your husband ever hit you? 
Did he, so because I'm very harsh. <laughs> Nick and Cheryl kind of revolutionized the way people talk about aid and made people very fired up and inspired and certainly made me want to get out there and be a part of the movement. So you were a commercial sex worker from when to when? From 94 to 98. I'm just curious how much you were paid for that work. 50 shillings. It's a tough topic. The challenge that women and girls face around the world is not an easy topic to talk about, but we really think it is the moral challenge of this century. Nick and Cheryl are out there talking about this issue, and not just talking about it kind of theoretically, but they have all these stories about actual girls and women that are going through some of these struggles. That really brings it to life for a much wider audience. Is that red door, is that a brothel, do you think? Yes, it is. Do you have a supply of condoms here? No, they don't have it. They have to buy it. And you have to buy condoms? As long as the victims are poor, rural, female, illiterate, they don't have voice. Don't want to forget that. <laughs> to be physically present in a place is irreplaceable. Nicholas is right. You have to show up. She's fine. <laughs> she is fine. Okay. This is like a war map, a strategic map. Where do we need someone to fight the enemy? She doesn't have a radial pulse. Disease, death. Celebrities can bring these issues into the limelight. That's just a no-brainer. That's your job, you know, to shine a little light on people that are actually doing the hard lifting. Mate, that one I told you, it's keeping soul. But from a brothel or from... from a brothel? You can't come up with something more beautiful than a young innocent girl and to inflict that experience on that human being is unspeakably cruel so she had to have like 10 12 plan a day if she don't want it they beat her i want to empower the survivor to stand up and say no if they want to say no three-year-old it's a three-year-old girl who has been raped and she's just come back for follow-up yeah we shouldn't allow the violence that has been inflicted on women to continue, it must stop. Because it can't stop. And they need to be part of the solution. You stay safe, okay? Sometimes the problem feels so big that changing one life doesn't feel like enough. But it is. So every person, every corner of this world needs to raise a voice and say this has to stop. This is not rocket science. This is not a problem that is unsolvable, that we have to invent something new. It just takes political will. The rights we want, we want to choose our husbands. We want to own the land. We want to go to school. We don't want to be cut anymore. We want also to make decisions. We want to participate in politics, to be leaders. We want to be uh, equal. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. If we are going to see real development in the world, then our best investment is women.
So there are some things that you actually can learn abroad, and uh, you know it helps you here solve similar problems. And so I want to talk about just one very briefly, um, which has to do with a very controversial topic, potentially, um, affirmative action for women. So, you know, there is a brilliant economist, um, Esther Duflo at MIT, who won the Clark Medal, which is the best economist under 40. And uh, a few years ago, uh, India mandated that one-third of all of their village chiefs had to be women. They just mandated that. And so they had a chance to do a huge sample to examine what happens when women become village chiefs. And so they looked at um, the first generation, and they saw that there was a huge amount of criticism of the women. Hypercriticism. I mean, they, they were uneducated, they didn't know anything, they, you know, you know, they were uh, inexperienced. But when the researchers examined the performance of, of this first generation of women, they saw that on balance compared to the men, they were only slightly better. I mean, they, <laughs> only slightly better. I mean, they did help with things like clean water for the village because they cared about that. They knew from their own experience at home that, they, that they, the families need to have clean water. They were less corrupt, but they also were less experienced and less educated. So on balance, they were only slightly better. Um, but there was just hypercriticism. The villagers all thought that these women were really bad they, as village chiefs. They just did not do well. The second generation, uh, the uh, researchers examined uh, how the women village chiefs were. Uh, and the second generation, they found again that they were only slightly better. On balance, still, they were still inexperienced, still sort of less educated, but they did help thing, with practical things like you know, getting good water. On balance, they were only slightly better. But the villagers, the perception were that, oh, these women were actually quite fine. I mean, they were you know, no different from men. They, they actually did a fine job. So it was very interest, interesting to see that the negative bias in the very beginning had gone away. And so the question is whether or not affirmative action could actually speed up uh, the disappearance of the negative bias in the beginning. So that's just something to think about as to whether or not it makes sense to have affirmative action policies for women. Just a thought. But then I want to um, close on, on this, on two things. On basically the question of, you know, why should you join in this in a movement to make things better? I mean, talk about conceptual movement because there's really no movement, but it's kind of join in a, a movement to help change the world and, and better your lives and improve society. What's in it for you? Why should you care? And to that, I have two things to say. The first is that there are very few things in life once we have all of our material needs satisfied, which all of us here in this room have, there are very few things in life that can actually raise your level of happiness, change your set point of happiness. One of those things is contributing to a cause larger than yourself. And the other thing, and I'll close on this, is a story about a aid worker in Darfur. This woman 
was strong and steadfast, she saw things that no human being should see. But she never broke down all her time in Darfur. She was just a strong aid worker. And then she came back for Christmas vacation. She was in her grandmother's backyard. And she saw something that made her break down in tears. What she saw was a bird feeder. A bird feeder. And she realized that she, was, she had the great fortune to be born in a land where we take for granted food, clothing, housing. We can get all that for ourselves. We can even provide food so that wild birds don't go hungry in the winter. And she realized that with that great fortune comes great responsibility. And so, like her, you, me, we all have won the lottery of life. The question is, how do you discharge that responsibility? And so, here's a cause. Join the movement, feel happier, maybe live longer, and help save the world. Thank you very much. so much, Cheryl, for enlightening us, opening our minds, and being here with us this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, Cheryl will take questions from the audience. You may submit your questions via Twitter using the hashtag IanThompsonForum, or for our live audience members, you may simply write questions on the cards provided by the ushers. There are several questions on the Twitter feed about the recipe for banana beer, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> the first question what cultural changes are needed to value women for who they are, their innate dignity, not just what they do? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. <laughs> I think just um, not thinking of them as women, just thinking of them as people. I think that's uh, the day when we don't have to say, what do we have to do for women is a great day because we'll just look at women as people. All right, how do we help women on a larger scale? You know, um, there are policies that can be done. I mean, you can't do this one by one. I mean, you really do need governments to intervene, uh, particularly in areas like education, for instance. You, you know, education, yes, you can have small schools, you can build small schools on a private basis, one by one, but to educate the nations, boys and girls, you need education policy, you need the government to intervene and, and to provide that education on a national scale. And in so many places, um, it is getting better, but is still not perfect. I mean, even in the Western Hemisphere, in, in, in Haiti, we don't have, you know, a, a national school program. Not everybody is, is enrolled in school. And so, you know, it, a lot of these impoverished countries, it, it takes a huge amount of political will 
Um, but it can be done. Uh, you know, one example is if you look at uh, Bangladesh. So Bangladesh actually used to be part of, remember, Pakistan. Uh, but the two split off, and Bangladesh decided we're going to educate everybody. We're going to educate boys and girls, but the girls get to go to school too. So over the years, uh, they educated a lot of girls, and you know, you see, I mean, it's so funny that you get Brack and you get Grameen Bank, you know, Nobel Prize winner from Bangladesh because he started microfinance and lending to women. Um, the focus on on just educating women and, and allowing them to work, bringing them to the formal labor force. And so they've, they've got, obviously, they have factories that you know, make clothes. Look, Bangladesh is still kind of a basket case, but it is so much better than Pakistan. So we see how uh, the focus on women really did help uh, turn around a nation. Thanks, Cheryl. From our Twitter feed this evening, if you could ask our current slate of presidential candidates one question, what would it be? <laughs> oh, wow. My goodness, the gamut. <laughs> um, well, I would say, what are you going to do uh, to, uh, what policy are you going to push forward to help address, um, you know, uh, the lack of women in, in all the industries, in politics and in, in, in industry and the corporate world, what policies will you create to actually encourage more women to rise to top positions? Right, thank you. Were the women I'm not sure. I, I don't know what Trump would say. <laughs> <laughs> Were the women village chiefs in India elected or appointed? And how do you think that impacted the perception of their fellow villagers? They were elected. Um, they, they were elected, um, and, um, but you always had to have, uh, you know, I think there was a combination. I think they were struggling through how to, how to make sure that the, they maintained that one-third. Uh, but I actually don't know the details, so that's a good question, and I will look that up. All right, thank you. What role does sex-selected abortion play in the missing female phenomena? Yeah, you know, that does play a large role, particularly in China and India, because, of course, a large part of the missing females are from those, those, those countries. They have such large populations in general. In fact, in China, um, there are, you know, huge numbers of, of missing females, you know, probably, uh, you know, several tens of millions. So they make up a large portion of that 60 to, to 100. Um, when the um, when when you got the uh, uh, the ultrasound and parents were able to look at what what the sex the fetus was, often uh, in China and in India, uh, they did abort the female fetuses. Uh, it's not allowed now, uh, but they didn't obviously didn't catch it in time for uh, you know for a lot of abortions. Uh, in fact, unfortunately, in a place like China, the ratio at birth of uh, males and females, it should be 106 boys for every 100 girls at birth, but in China, it's something like 117 boys for every 100 girls. It's totally um, uh, skewed, uh, and that creates a huge problem. In fact, there are more males in, in, in China now, and, and so there are a lot of males that will never be able to get married. Uh, they um, they have a saying for it. They call them bare branches. I don't know why <laughs> bare branches. Um, you know, and and there are some kind of funny things. It's not so funny in the end, but uh, really, they they talk now about 
met, you know, several men sharing a wife, that kind of thing. All these creative ideas are coming up because they have a real problem. Right. In your Makers Women interview, you denied being a feminist. Why is that? You know, I just don't think of being an ist or an ism, and, you know, I <laughs> have a, you know, enough to worry about that I don't spend that much time worrying about it. That's really what my response was. Which news media do you trust most? <laughs> well, the New York Times, of course. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> Your husband thanks you for that answer, sure. <laughs> oh, you're not, not going to take that one. Okay. Well, uh, uh, well it's, I also used to work there, too. So. <laughs> perhaps a slightly deeper question. How do you feel the oppression of women began? Oh, boy. That, I don't really have a great answer for. I mean, I, you know, it's, I don't think it's a, if you go back to, you know, ancient Rome, even before that, in the, you know, the period of, um, of uh, you know, in China, you know, 4,000, 5,000 years of history, you know, way back then, um, I just don't know how, you know, it, it, it ever started. I mean, I think that one of the theories is that when we were an agricultural-based society uh, and brawn counted much more than brains, well, then men were stronger and so they won that, that battle. They were always stronger. And so now, we've sort of, you know, we don't live by agriculture anymore, um, you know, and brawn isn't as strong. It doesn't count for as much and brains count for a lot and women have no dearth of brains. So, you know, that, that may, you know, have counted for some of the, some of the shift. Right, and a question from our uh, live studio audience this evening. What steps can be taken to combat gender inequality rooted in religious beliefs? You know, um, you know, I think that, uh, I don't know a huge amount about the religion, uh, religious um, process, but I do think that you do need leadership. You need uh, leadership at the top to take bold steps. Uh, we may be seeing a little bit of that from the Pope. Uh, you know, certainly uh, in uh, some religions there are women's groups that are forming within uh, the organization and they are trying to at least, uh, you know, build network within the religion. Uh, there's women vision as, you know, uh, part of world vision. And so you see some of, uh, you know, steps towards, uh, I mean, you're, you can't call it equality, but improving the status of women within religion. It's very tough. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a tough issue. And um, unless there is leadership at the top that is willing to uh, be a little bit more open on this issue, I think uh, we will only see very, very slow progress. How do we bring cultural change needed to stop violence against women in the U.S. and abroad? You know, I do think that that starts with, um, you know, education uh, at the very youngest level, um, starting at, you know, in early childhood education. Uh, I think also that we are, and we talk about this in a path appears a little bit more, we actually are wired uh, uh, to be compassionate. There is a compassion gene that we have. Um, there are varying degrees uh, 
uh, of compassion that we are born with. And there's actually a gene that one that peop, some researchers are isolating, um, and it you know they get into sort of the uh, you know uh, the specific you know uh, type of genes, uh, whether you're an AA or a GG, and uh, GGs are not for good good, but it it kind of it could mean uh, good good. You just have a lot of compassion. So people like Mother Teresa, naturally compassion compassionate, whereas you know. People like Machiavelli, naturally not compassionate. Most of us are, are in between. But what's really encouraging is that you can actually cultivate compassion. You can actually raise people um, to be more compassionate because the environment is extremely important and it can have a huge influence. So I think that we need to raise our kids to become more compassionate. Uh, and I think that's really important and to raise them to, to understand that, uh, you know, women are not objects, they're not, you know, things to be kicked, that they are, you know, human beings that you should respect. So I think that's where uh, it's th in raising, we start with the individual level and then you have to, uh, you know, if there could be larger policies that also uh, reflect these, uh, these kinds of attitudes, then we really can uh, make progress towards that. There's some, some societies that are, are much more equal uh, in terms of male-female uh, at different levels of government, uh, you know, the corporate world and such, that are you know, doing a better job than, than we are here in the U.S. Thanks, Cheryl. A question recently tweeted, what is your measure of success for the gender equality and education movement in developing countries? Yeah, that's... Um, there are... The U.N. puts out a huge number of, of, of indices, uh, uh, by which they measure, uh, you know, the progress of, of countries. And, you know, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, they have everything from, you know, what age uh, girls actually end up continuing school in. So uh, there are 60 million girls, uh, you know, something like that, who are 50, 60, who are not in primary school, and they should be. Uh, they look at, you know, by country, uh, what level of educational attainment a lot of these um, girls get to. And so that's, that's one of the basic statistics. Uh, and um, then there's also job statistics as well. So there's a huge, this is a huge area. How do we get more men involved as champions for gender equality? That is a great question. Um, and so it's great to have you, Mike, asking these questions <laughs> about women. Uh, it's really important for us to think that this is not a women's issue. This is a social issue. We need to change attitudes in society. Uh, that's why Nick and I wrote the book together, A Man and a Woman, because we really think that in order to change society, everyone has to change their attitude. It can't, if it's just a women's thing, then we sort of lost the battle already. We, we haven't even started. Uh, and you know, it's important just to look at, you know, people as, as human beings and uh, have a greater respect for the rights of people as individuals. And so I think it's really important to, uh, to embrace men in this endeavor as well and not uh, isolate them or alienate them. So a lot of programs that are, you know, being conducted, for instance, in parts of Africa where there are things like female cutting, for instance. They are trying to involve men in the process so that, that men actually, uh, it's a very complicated issue. I mean, I, I guess the easiest way I could explain is that um, when, uh, you know, in China, 
for hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, they had something called foot binding. I don't know how many of you heard of foot binding, but they actually took a little girl's foot, they bound it, my grandmother's feet were bound. I mean, it's awful, awful practice. Um, and it wasn't just a women's thing, even though it was mothers doing it to their daughters. Uh, it turned out that the reason this happened is that, you know, the men wanted to marry women with bound feet, and they thought it wasn't, a woman wasn't really whole if she didn't have bound feet. And so they uh, had to, it turns out there were Westerners who were appalled at this practice and really started to overcome it. It's one of the few instances where, you know, outsiders had, you know, did a really great job. They convinced Chinese intellectuals to say, you know, this is a terrible thing. The Chinese intellectuals started saying, yes, this is a shame on our society, we've got to change it. And then they realized that that wasn't enough. They went to the local, there's something called the local marriage associations who were helping broker a lot of these marriages and turned out that they were pivotal. So when you convince the marriage associations that it was okay for men to marry women who didn't have bound feet, that's when things started to change. And in a generation, you had foot binding just disappear. So you really can change culture and it can happen very, very fast, but you need to figure out, uh, given the particular practice, what is the best way of doing it. Cheryl, I'm continuing to see on our Twitter feed more questions about the banana beer recipe, so you may want to bring that with you to the book signing after the talk tonight. <laughs> Affirmative action occurs and works in some countries. It has also created token leadership situations in others. How can we fix that? I say that again? So affirmative action can create a token leadership position in some countries. How do we fix that? You know, they've actually done some um, research on you know, at what level uh, being a female really matters. So um, there, were some, there, there were some research that shows that at the very, very top, um, it may not make a difference. I mean, countries like the Philippines and uh, um, Pakistan, they've had women leaders. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, it's when you get to that village chief level, that's when you can have a little bit more of a difference. We saw it was only, they were marginally better, right? Um, but they also provide role models because they're much closer to the ordinary people and they provide role models for women, for, for, for growing girls and, and women and that's very important. That's one of the most important things is just providing role models for, for girls, particularly in societies like Pakistan and, and, and India where, you know, um, the, the rights for, for women are really pretty, uh, pretty weak. Uh, and so I do think that that's, um, that's where it, it counts more. All right, ladies and gentlemen, before Cheryl takes her final question this evening, I wanted to mention that the theme for next year's E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues will be Crossing Borders. We hope that you'll join us for another remarkable series of speakers. And Cheryl, our last question this evening, what can each of us go home and do right now? Yes, well, um, you know, what I tell people is that you have to find something that you're interested in. You know, don't just jump on a cause because everyone else is. You have to choose something that you care about uh, because that's how you'll get more involved and you'll be motivated to stay involved. Do it with a bunch of friends. Uh, find some friends and talk about a few issues and then choose an issue together that all of you can, you know, uh, join in together. Maybe get involved in an organization uh, and... Um, you know, join uh, that organization or help in your local community, uh, help that organization build a presence in that community or help deliver, a, 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 you know, a, a service or uh, you obviously there's always, um, uh, you know, contributions that you can make. But I think 
the key is just to take that first step uh, because nothing happens if you don't take that first step. And to realize that it's just not a burden. And in fact, when you find uh, that you take that first step, you'll find that, you know, it really can be very rewarding. And uh, if it's rewarding, then you're happier. And that's what's really important in life. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for your powerful example of activism. Thanks for visiting Lincoln, and thanks for signing books in the back. Thanks, everyone. Thank Good night.